Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest this week is Tobin Van Ostern, co-founder at Savvy. Savvy helps America's 46 million student loan borrowers easily lower their payments and find forgiveness. In this conversation, we cover Tobin's background in politics and how that led him to the world of technology, what Savvy does and why, and how he sees the world of student debt developing as policies change and the world remains more than a little bit uncertain. And now, here's Tobin. Tobin, how you doing today, man? Great, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. After our prep call, I've been looking forward to this greatly, my friend. Where are you today? You in D.C. doing the usual thing? Yep, I'm in D.C. I'm in a uh, 95% empty co-working space right now to, since my uh, apartment is a little small for this kind of thing. Um, but so, so sort of in an office. There you go. 95% empty co-working space. I think you should just refer to that as your office and you yes. just, you just ball in, just got I the now, whole thing. I now have a very large office. In fact, I have 20 or 30 offices in, in the, in this space. So that's how you know you made it. That's how you know you made it. All right. So let's go, let's go back to the, to the early days of your life. Tell me about kind of where you grew up, how you grew up and what kind of led you, I guess, in the earlier days, more so into politics almost than into technology or anything. That, yeah, you're exactly right. So, you know, I grew up, uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Um, not too far from where I am now. And uh, my older brother, he's about 10 years older than I, uh, ended up similarly kind of getting a bit of a political bug, working on campaigns, things like that. And so I, you know, since he was a fair bit older than me, you know, I had an opportunity usually to like spend a week with him in the summer or something like that, uh, where he might be working on a campaign. Um, you know, he spent time in Iowa and New Hampshire and it kind of gave me a crash course in politics. Um, and then at the same time, you know, honestly, I've just have always been naturally adept at technology. You know, I just pick it up quickly and easily. And so, you know, I would do lots of stuff on the side with websites, et cetera. And, um, basically over time, those two started getting closer and closer together as, you know, the internet <laughs> became a bigger deal for politics and, uh, uh, and so forth. Um, so that's kind of what put me on the early, you know, this early path. And I just, you know, I enjoyed, um, you know, just the involvement in how our country functions. You know, it's cool to see up, up close and up front. I will say it did not, leave me wanting to run for office, <laughs> which looks like a grueling activity, but it did leave me with a great chance to kind of learn, you know, how the sausage gets made and how do the ideas actually get passed uh, into practice, things like that. Yeah. So tell me about that kind of first entree into that, that combination of the world of politics and technology, specifically, if I remember correctly, and kind of what I hinted about, like our previous uh, prep call, you worked early days in the Obama campaign, right? And we're somewhat responsible for some pieces of that whole thing. Yeah, a little bit. So, you know, the point where I would say those two interests of mine fully converged was basically 2006. And I was doing, you know, I was interested in in 
politics, but I was doing a variety of work um, on technology, including helping stand up uh, a website and do some early organizing on Facebook for with other students because I was in college at the time, who supported Barack Obama and actually wanted to convince him to run for president. You know, weird to think about now, but in 2000, early 2006, it was unclear if he was going to run for president. So, wow. We, you know, we started doing organizing, 99% of it online, uh, most of that on Facebook, to basically get a bunch of other college students together to say, hey, you know, Barack Obama, you should run for president. And if you do, a lot of young people are going to register and turn out to vote and support you. And so... You know, to fast forward a little bit. Uh, Hold on, but before you fast forward, had he <laughs> had he hinted that he wanted to run, and he was is this like is this like the the dating experience of like, well, maybe I'm interested, but I'm waiting on him to ask me out, kind of vibe, or like how I did not know this. I thought he was all the way in, ready to run, ready to sprint, kind of thing. I didn't know there was ever any on the fence hesitancy. Yeah, you know the. Um, I guess a lot of this was maybe late 2005 as I think back into 2006. I think there was a spectrum. I think early on it was very much just, you know, hey, you're a popular senator. You had a big speech at the Democratic convention. You wrote a very mm. popular book. You should run. Yeah. And I don't know if he had made any decision. And then I think as time went on and on, um, you know, I think that he got closer to deciding he would run and it became a little more of, uh, uh, you know, um, what are the what's the trigger for actually jumping in jumping into the race? You know, I believe, you know, from reading about this after the fact, like in uh I guess it would be December, January time period, end of two thousand five, early two thousand six, you know, he went on a vacation with his family and it seems like that's when he decided to run. So there was a phase where yeah, he was undecided, and then there was a phase towards the end, right before he launched, where we were still doing what we were doing and there wasn't a campaign yet, but they were, they were getting ready to launch that campaign. That must've been a bizarre time to be Barack Obama kind of on the fence about doing this thing. And then a whole bunch of students are like, come on, come do it. Like you, huh? I, I don't even have a question. That's just mind blowing. I had no idea. All right. So we talked him into it. He said, all right, I'll do this thing after his, after his vacation. And then yeah. where did we go from there? Yeah. So basically what happened was, they told myself and some of the other leaders of this Students for Obama, you know, pseudo organization, um, Meredith Siegel is my co-founder. And they basically told us, hey, why don't you guys do a rally uh, and we'll make sure to get Obama there to speak at it. Um, and the way timing worked out is they said he's going to be in D.C. for this DNC winter meeting. You can organize at any college in the area. And then they basically mm. left everything else up to us. And um, what ended up happening, you know, I learned this after the fact and <laughs> didn't know this at the time. But one of the reasons why they were doing this, they told us later, is they wanted to see what does, you know, a million likes on Facebook mean? I mean, he was the most liked candidate on Facebook of anyone ever. And, you know, you're talking a million people. So very different than the numbers you see today. But they didn't know what that meant. Um, you know, we had this popular Students for Obama group, etc. So uh, we did, we organized an event at George Mason University just outside DC. We promoted it largely online through our chapter leaders who we've never met in person um, uh, and just talked to virtually. And the short version is they they hoped a couple hundred students would show up and we maxed occupancy of the building 
3,500 people and there was an overflow area and they were, they were pumped. So I believe it was 10 days after that he officially announced he was running for president in Illinois. Um, and, uh, or he launched his campaign from Illinois, I should say. Uh, and they called us up, Meredith and I and said, all right, do you guys, do you guys want to come join the campaign and help us, uh, take this to the next level? And we have, we of course said yes. And so that's sort of when the, my two worlds became, <laughs> became one. So we, I promise are going to talk about savvy and talk about student loans, but I got to <laughs> get a little bit more of this because this is just fascinating. What was it like running that campaign? I mean, there's, there's probably some Gen Zers listening to this right now, or even heaven forbid, Gen Alpha. Uh, I think they would probably be too young to listen to this at this point, but whatever. You, you get the idea. Like that next generation's like, wait, what? At some point they ran, they ran campaigns without the Facebooks and without the tweeters. Like, how's that possible? So talk, talk me through like what that strategy was like. Would, I mean, were people kind of yeah. skeptical of it? Were people like laughing you out of the room or was it accepted at all? Yeah, so it it was very it's it's a very twilight zone, very weird thing to think back on now. I mean, on the technology side, just to give one easy example, there is a team of the campaign, you know, you had a te- team for like fundraising, a team for field operations things like that. You had a team called New Media. Basically meaning like the internet and things associated with it. No campaign has a new media team anymore. It's just that's just part of your campaign. You wouldn't have a uh, you know, uh, what's this new thing? Let's put a few people on. Yeah. Um, it's like so having yeah, a, it was a different time. Yeah. Like having a billboard team in the fifties. It's like, let's try these out. <laughs> Maybe they'll work. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's like, no, that's, that's your advertising team or that's your community. You know, it's part of your communication. There's no team that's not going to interface with it. Right. Um, and then, you know, similar as we were just talking about to the, would he run? I would say even more kind of pronounced or, definitive was he was the long shot candidate not to say he didn't have a shot but he was not the presumptive nominee so you know we joined this campaign most people did not think he would win they thought he had a good chance but you know he's just one of a dozen plus candidates and it was an amazing experience i mean it's it was exactly like a startup that's what i i've learned now as time has gone on is that's what it is you know we to kind of jump to the end over the primary and the general election we raised and spent a billion dollars. I mean, that's, you know, think of a, and that's a 12 to 18 month time period, right? So, you know, if you think about that in startup world, day one, um, and 18 months later, you're done. It's a, it's a high intensity, high paced startup. And what I love is at the end, you know, if you won or lost, you know, there's no different people and, you know, different exits and what it means, like either was going to win or lose. And that's all it came down to. The finality of it seems like it would be beautiful. That was one of my favorite. This has nothing to do with it. But one of my favorite parts about running an accelerator in my previous life was just like sprint my face off and do a whole bunch of irrational things for my health for like six months and then just fall on my face for like the next month, you know, and like do some stuff maybe, but just, I was just a useless heap after demo day. And it feels like oh, yeah. election would be very similar. I mean, how, how, did you take some time off after he did win? Did you join the administration? How'd that, how'd that go? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're a, you're right. I mean, I think the only way that pace is sustainable on a campaign is because you know, there's an end date. Right. Um, I think that's one of the things about startups is that's harder is if things go well, it keeps going. <laughs> you know, there's a, there, that your pace doesn't let off. Um, well, so after the campaign ended, I uh, it was a tough call what to do, and basically I went back 
to college and finish getting my degree because uh, I was taking some time off to do the campaign. Um, and then I ended up joining a, a large think tank in D.C., basically focused around some of the policy priorities of the president that would dis- that would impact young adults in particular, since that was the group I felt some uh, responsibility to. Yeah. You know, I'd spent a lot of time convincing people to vote for him. Now I wanted to make progress on the reasons why they voted for him, which were, you know, policy issues. So, yeah. uh, you know, brought the technology piece with me, though. You know, how do we think through implementation of this? How do we, you know, um, in- involve new people in new ways in the decision-making process? Um, you know, yeah. I- Etc. And and student debt, not surprisingly, was a focus in the campaign. Was a focus afterwards for me. Um, I believe I could be getting this slightly wrong, but I believe Obama was probably the first president who had his own student loan. Still, um, he paid him <laughs> off when he sold when he wrote his book. Uh, I don't know. Which was not. I don't know who else <laughs> would be. I mean, thinking back, yeah. <laughs> like we have basically, you know, basically a monarchy for the the presidents preceding him. So I cannot imagine any of them had student loan debt. Yeah, there's not a lot. You know, there's a few, but there's not a lot of millionaires with student loans. So uh, yeah, he was he was unusual. Um, did you ever? So was, did you ever get to talk yeah. to him? You ever? You guys ever have a conversation? Uh, we have spoken a few times. I mean, um, I was yeah, I was fortunate enough to meet him. I mean, to be honest, early in the primary, when he's a long shot candidate, you know, you look around and he shows up in your office. So uh, things changed a lot once he became the nominee. Uh, but but yeah, um, spoke a few times, uh, and uh, I think you know there was a tone from the top down, like he really cared about young people turning out and. Supporting him, it was important to his strategy, but I think he believed in it sort of as the future of the country. So that gave us some extra cloud and leeway. And it was just the team was overall very respectful. You know, you asked earlier, people were very respectful of it reaching out, engaging students, using technology. It was a very open minded campaign and led to a lot of success for him. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to stop obsessing over the insanity that is this entire story and we'll move on to student loans um, because it sounds like that's the next step in life here. But how did you how did you kind of uncover the insanity of student lending and everything that you're running after today? Was it your own experience? Was it, you know, Obama on a hill somewhere giving a beautiful speech and you had an aha moment? Like, how did how did you figure out this was such a big problem? I, I think often for startups, you know, the founder's story and the company's origin story become very intertwined. And this this was definitely one of those. So uh, I was doing a lot of work on student loan policy. You know, even back then, I remember we did a big event when it passed a trillion dollars in student loan debt. Unfortunately, it's 1.7 trillion today. So, you know, it's crazy to think of time when it was below a trillion. Um, but that was a big marker. And we were trying to think about then, you know, how do you get it? forgiven for people who, let's say, go into a high need field that pays a little less. Like if you're a doctor and you go to an area where there's a doctor shortage, can we forgive some of your student loans instead of you just going into private practice where maybe you make more money, but um, it's not solving a societal need yeah. or, or teachers, you know, how teachers, teachers, for God's sakes. that's the one that just continues to piss me off. I can't believe that people go into student loan debt to help the entire United States learn things and then they're screwed financially. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and do you really, you know, you don't want it, it. It's something our society needs. And so we're, you know, let's create a program that incentivizes someone to be a teacher. And in fact, 
you know, could we even go farther? Could we incentivize them to teach in, you know, higher poverty areas or fields that we have less teachers in, things like that? I mean, yep. it's a great way to sort of, you know, the, the hope of some of these programs is um, to incentivize people to do things that will have sort of a multiplier positive effect on, on all of us. Um, you know, or even mechanics like how, you know, this is incredibly wonky stuff, but how should interest rates be set on student loans? Mm. You know, the, go- the federal government is the one issuing these loans. So it's not like there's some private process where, you know, they're just selling it on the market and it is what it is. Like the government can borrow money and create money. <laughs> so how, how much should it charge, you know, interest on the, its own loans it's giving to its own citizens? So um, there's a lot in there. And along the way, I got to, you know, there were maybe half a dozen different groups who really worked on this issue from a policy and implementation perspective in DC outside of government. And I got to know the leader of one of the others, uh, Aaron Smith, who had started an organization called Young Invincibles very well. Hmm. And so Aaron and I were constantly at all these meetings together, different orgs, but got to know each other. And what happened is, you know, fast forward a few years later, we realized, unfortunately, Aaron and I did, that many of the policies we had you know, worked a lot, a lot, spent a lot of time and energy on, we're not helping enough people. I mean, that's just the reality. You know, student debt was going up. The number of people behind on their student loan payments was going up. Um, the number of people getting forgiveness, you know, teachers, nurses, like I mentioned, uh, was much, much lower than the number that should have been getting forgiveness. And so we sort of looked at that and said, you know, don't get us wrong. There's a lot more of good that can be done on the policy side. But is there anything we could do, you know, on the outside of that to just help people get into the programs already on the books? And that was really the first genesis of the idea of what would become Savvy and Aaron and I would end up co-founding together. I love it. So, so much of it reminds me of like the first time that I signed up with a person that actually like an actual CPA to help with my taxes. You know, yeah, I was like running three different businesses, barely breaking even on any of them year one. Right. And then I, I somehow still owned too much in taxes. And then year two, I get a real CPA involved and I get a return. Nothing changed, but like somebody was actually helping me navigate through this thing. Right. And then all of a sudden the world changes because if you don't know, to take a left there, you know, you end up with increased everything or what, you know, whatever the butchered metaphor that I'm getting after is, it sounds like at the end of the day, you guys are just providing an automated navigator to the best situation for your student loans. That's right. What we realized is people were, it it was so complicated in terms of the number of options out there that people were basically overpaying on their student loans for no reason. And just like your taxes example, I think it holds up perfectly. You know, it's not that we're changing their eligibility for anything. We're just saying, Hey, you are eligible for this. And then we're doing the paperwork for you. So, you know, we saw that as something that would be very scalable. Um, by our estimates, the majority of the 47 million people with student loans are overpaying on their student loans. So it's not a little sliver. It's the vast majority of people are not optimized. Wow. Um, why why so, is that? Let me double click on that piece. Is that like they're not refined? Do, I, I know nothing. So talk to me like an idiot. Like, can you can you <laughs> can you refinance these loans? How, how does that work? Are you supposed to aggregate them somehow? What What is the responsible thing to do? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I think when most people think of student loans, refi is a logical thing that comes to mind. It's something people are aware of with other debt products. But what we've realized is 
most refinance companies, you know, there's a bunch out there, right? Like SoFi is probably one of the, the biggest. You know, they're looking for the least risky borrowers, those with the highest income. I think SoFi's average borrower, you know, significant six figure salary. Well, not representative of your average student yeah. loan borrower. Henry's. And they're denying everybody else. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the, the, what we realized though is the government programs, you know, programs, for example, let's, there's a, pr- big set of programs that cap how much you have to pay to the government every month on your student loans at 10% or less of your income. You know, it's, it's in practice, the calculation is a little more complicated than that, but it, just think of it as if your income goes down, your payment will go down. Um, that doesn't take into account how much you make from an absolute perspective. There's no credit requirements to get into that. So if you lost your job, 10% of nothing is zero. You wouldn't have to pay anything on your student loans that month. So, uh, most people can't figure out which of all of these different options are the best for them. And then those who even are aware of those options, which isn't most people, um, struggle with the paperwork. You know, the majority of people who apply for these kinds of programs on their own get denied, uh, particularly forgiveness programs. So, you know, we saw that as two problems technology could solve. You know, it's not hard for compared to someone trying to do this with pen and paper. Technology can figure out what your best option is, you know, out of hundreds of options. Um, you need to fill out that paperwork. Why don't we build logic that can automate that so that that paperwork is filled out exactly right and it's going to get approved and we, you know, with 99% certainty. Um, that, and, and that was the idea of Savvy. And again, because it was technology so- solution, we really wanted to build something that could help tens of millions of people. And we felt like that could scale and that could do well. Yeah. I mean, bringing the metaphor forward, I mean, TurboTax, right? I mean, I'll, I'll stop talking about taxes now, but it seems like the the metaphor continues to fit in terms of a very complicated paperwork. Paper paperwork. I, I clearly did one interview before this and cannot speak English anymore. Paperwork. Uh, and it's just a very confusing, multifaceted thing like how how could anybody figure that out you know and i sure as hell couldn't file my own taxes without some piece of software yeah i mean if you think about it most people use tax software or an accountant and you know i i think to carry the analogy of turbo tax or student loans forward uh it's not it's you know if your accountant or software said hey we found you a thousand dollar refund you'd be happy about that but if they were like all right now go figure out all the paperwork to get it that doesn't really solve your problem. Right. Same, same, same with our theory. Like, yeah, it's good for us to say, Hey, we found you savings on your student loans, but what people really want is the actual savings. And so that's why that paperwork piece, not sexy, you know, it's key to the taxes. It's key to student loans. Um, and that's a lot of the value we deliver to our users. It makes sense. One of my questions about this is kind of almost like first principle Z. But why, why is it so hard to navigate? Was it created that? Is it just like the government just kind of does stuff and the government does stuff? Therefore, it's kind of confusing because that's how the government works. Or do you think there was a certain amount of like, well, if we add, you know, if we add four things that they need to fill out instead of two, then the likelihood they actually do it is lower. So we'll get more money. Like, do you think that there was like nefarious incentives there? Or do you think it's just generically like this is how government works? I think it's predominantly unintended consequences mm-hmm. of good intention. So, you, you know, we we actually have had student loans um, since around World War II. They were first created to help, you know, people coming out of the military. And, you know, so we've had 
decades now of student loan policies, and they layer on top of one another. Uh, so, you know, every president, every Congress might create one new student loan program that's good and helps someone, but it just makes, you know, you add that to all the ones before it. And to the borrower, all of a sudden, they're looking at 100 programs instead of 99. And it makes it less accessible. So I think, it, yeah, I think it's mainly just there's complexity that's been added up over time. I think the other piece, you, you know, I, I could I could talk about this at length, but the government really does struggle with technology. I mean, you know, as a progressive, uh, as you can gather from my background, like that bothers me because I think when the government's doing things, it needs to do it well. But you know, to I balance out. Can I just say that that's maybe not a progressive statement? Like, <laughs> just a, can we just agree that humans should all agree that when the government does something, it should do it well? That's, yeah, that's just a, a, a pro pro citizen pro America uh, sentiment. Fair. Um, yeah. I mean, to counterpoint some of my uh, you know early Obama days, the one of the biggest priorities of President Obama was healthcare. You know, an ACA and healthcare.gov. And that launch was a disaster. Yeah. And so that was a huge priority, though. I mean, you had the best people working on it from the highest reaches of the government. So carry that down to student loans, where there are great people working on this issue too in the government, but, you know, it's not nearly the same priority as healthcare.gov. And to expect them to have a perfect, modern, well functioning website that does all this is, I think, unrealistic. So, um, I do think that though that the private sector can and should step up more. I mean, we're you know hopefully living that out ourselves. Just in that, you know, I fundamentally think if you're solving big societal problems, your business has big opportunity. And student loans is one that there hasn't been a lot of time and energy put into from the private sector side either. Um, And and so anyway, I think there was just a big gap there that we and other folks in the space are trying to fill. Yeah. Well, speaking, speaking of, uh, I really can't talk today, guys. This is rough. (laughs) Speaking of incentives, what is your incentive? How does Savvy make money? Yeah. So we at Savvy, well, first off, we set our company up a little bit differently. We're a C Corp, but we're specifically a public benefit company. It's a legal status in Delaware. And it allowed us to have a mission. And our mission was to help student loan borrowers. You know, we're pretty comfortable about Savvy while Aaron and I are, you know, running the company, but we wanted to set up a structure that uh, from a fiduciary perspective and otherwise clearly was just about putting student loan borrowers first and helping them. To that end, we wanted a business model that aligned our interests with borrowers, uh, student loan borrowers. You know, it, it can be tough. Often what that in, in many other sectors, I think what it means is giving people less good terms and the, you know, the difference in that is what your revenue is or your profit is as a company. We didn't, we didn't want that structure. And so we came up with a model where anyone could use our software to see how much they could save for free. So we wanted it to be as broadly accessible and, and easy for folks as possible. Um, see if you can save. You know, spend sixty seconds. Maybe you don't think there's a program for you. Doesn't hurt to try. And then where we make money is on accessing that savings. So okay, you found you you know you you figured out you can save money. Now we're going to do the heavy lifting of that enrollment part. That's where we charge a fee. And typically, savvy. So we're not direct to consumer. 
We're a B2B2C model. And so we work with employers, financial institutions, membership groups, etc. And they often pick up that whole fee or, or at least subsidize that fee um, uh, at that point of enrollment. And so that's mm-hmm. how we make money. And the great thing there is if we can't find you savings, no one gets charged anything. You know, If we're not getting you savings, no one's getting charged. Um, but if we are finding you savings, it's a great ROI on that cost. You know, an employer would spend, let's say, you know, 75 bucks on us and that employee would save $1,900. I mean, that's great. You know, that's the employers love that. The employee loves that. So that's how our, our actual business model works. You and I talked previously about Tony uh, Aguilar and student loan genius and kind of one of the earlier movers in that space and the, the employer side of it just makes a ton of sense, right? Especially like I, I work at Bond. We now have DoorDash as uh, you know, employee benefit. Like employee benefits are coming from every direction. People have pet insurance now. Like it's it's wild. So that makes sense to me. Listening to you talk though, I'm curious, should savvy be embedded inside of the the neobanks of the world? Like, should there be a, hey, check on your student loans status or see if we can save you some money or something like that out maybe outside of SoFi, but more so inside of like a cash app where maybe people need Mm -hmm. it more or inside of a chime where people need or current or whatever, you know, somebody that's truly trying to help the unbanked, underbanked group of people that we're kind of talking about here. Like, is there a future where you're B2B to C through a partner like that? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think... While we're very excited and have had great traction on the employer channel, we're also mindful that not everyone has an employer that is going to be able to pay for this. Yeah. Or maybe people are, you know, you're a gig economy worker, you're a contractor, you're between jobs. You know, we want right. to be able to, some, some of those folks might be those who would benefit the most from savvy, right? Um, if your income's fluctuating. So we want to make sure we can help those folks too. I think neobanks are a great example. Uh, you know, some of them, have I think neobanks and other fintech startups? You know they kind of got their starts with, um, you know wedges in some ways, right? Like we'll negotiate your cable bill or something like that. And I think one of the challenges was that works when you're small, but when you're huge, Verizon just or Comcast just say no, and that, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that savings opportunity doesn't exist anymore. Well, in this case, yeah. like what did happen the, to Bill Shark? I haven't heard anything about Bill Shark in like two years, man. I, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm not calling anyone out specifically, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not know, either. Were, but yeah, I'll Bill have Shark. To Google what it happened? after. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean, so, as you're talking, like Truebill is an example of that. That's like scaling really well. Yeah, exactly. I think they like there. You you know, there's there's companies that I would say are different, but this concept of can you find savings and pass it on to your consumer? Super logical, right? And I think what that savings is is kind of the key, you know, is it something that's sustainable or not? So for us, um, you know, I can't name anyone specific at this point, but yeah, we're in talks with several entities in that space for exactly that reason, which is this is a wedge that won't go away because the government is intentionally paying for it. They want people to do it. You know, they've budgeted money for people to get the savings that people aren't using. So um, we think there's great partnership potential to just try to get savvy into the hands of more underbanked folks, more folks who might be struggling with their student loan payment. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, you hear that, Neobank founders? Sounds like you need to reach out to Tobin and, and create some additional value add. Um, we, we would love to talk. Absolutely. <laughs> how much of this is like a 
yeah, I just, I don't know how old you are, but I'm going to assume you're a millennial. How much of this is a millennial problem versus how much of this is kind of, are people carrying these loans kind of later into life? Like I've, I can think of a couple people whose parents actually still have a loan on the book. So how, like, what is your user base kind of, I'm just curious about like how long these things live on average. Yeah. I think when people hear student loans, they often think of college students, right? It's an, it's a logical connection. And obviously, there are a lot of college students with student loans. And that's when people take it out and first repay it. Uh, but one of the... And I would, I would say unfortunate things that's happened over the last few decades is it, it is not... It is no longer just a young person's kind of issue where you take out some loans. It's not a lot. You pay it back pretty quickly with your first job, and you're you know you're done and on. It's it's sticking with people. So we um, we now know that the fastest growing group of people with student loan debt uh, over the last you know few years is actually people fifty and older. So. Almost 20% of student loan debt is held by people 50 or over today. Wow. One out of five student loan dollars, someone 50 or older. So we, we actually just rolled out a new partnership with ours, new client of ours with the AARP. Um, something that I think five years ago, everybody would have laughed about. Why does the AARP need student loans? Now, maybe, you know, some people, it catches them off guard, but, but the AARP has looked at their members and realized, yeah, a lot of them have student loans. It's impacting when they can retire, um, et cetera. They might have loans for their children or their grandchildren. So we're really excited about that partnership to get in the hands of everybody who needs help, um, young, old, et cetera. And so our, our average user is actually, you know, in their, in their, uh, late thirties, um, you know, pretty, uh, uh, pretty middle of the road economically as well. Uh, because student loan debt is so big now, it's, it's, it's more pervasive than ever. It's wild. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've, I've known uh, a recent hire of yours, Eliza Sir, for a long time. And we've collaborated back when she was at AARP uh, on a couple different things. And she worked with a group and a friend of mine um, who does a lot of tax withholding stuff. And I, it was always wild to me how many folks over 50 that were part of the AARP group membership. I don't know the proper term. Um we're doing things like driving Uber, right? Like driving Uber Eats, doing DoorDash, mm-hmm. things like that. And, you know, I always kind of thought like, ah, you know, idle hands or the devils, whatever. But it's really more so that they have to in a lot of cases, which I did not understand until Eliza dumped a whole bunch of data points on me that she seems to have hidden somewhere in her brain. That woman is amazing to me. But it really is mind blowing to me that that market is is so big and in so much need and that it's so I don't know about underserved, but it feels underserved, right? Like Kinder or Silver, whatever the the brand you want to use is, like that's one of the only neobank retirement advisors that I can think of that actually serves folks in those later years. So I don't know the question, but I'm just glad that you guys are providing that for that group as well because it seems like people overly focus on the millennial going through this problem. Thank you. Yeah. I, and you know, one of the reasons why we're so excited to have Eliza on our team, she leads a lot of these partnerships with us, is not only are there different groups of people who, like you said, maybe they're underserved and under-resourced, but this, unfortunately, it's compounded because the student loan side of the equation is often even more complicated than average. So we have a lot of parents who take out loans for their kids to go to school. 
And there's a lot of confusion there around, you know, even basic things like whose loan is it? Is it the parent's loan or is it the kid's loan? You know, the student's loan. Um, Let's say there's a, you know, a forgiveness program. Well, is that based off of where the parent works or is that based off of where that student chose to work, you know, if they went into teaching? And so there's just so much um, complexity there that, again, you know, you add that on top of the fact that there's less resources for them. and it, it makes a bad situation worse. So, yeah, we're really excited. Um, that's that's one of the reasons we do this partnership model is to let us target and get savvy more directly in the hands of different groups of people. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to think about the number of groups that you are serving. But I take a step back and think about the the venture back nature of your business. And I'm curious if. Maybe, maybe less so recently, but in the early days, did you have VCs kind of say, like scratch their head and say, what? This is a problem, right? Like the whole, you know, you build a, you build an MVP on a, on an Android phone and then they only have an iPhone. So they don't get it kind of a classical conundrum or did they get it? What was, what were those conversations like? Yeah. The, I think there's speaking broadly a bit of a blind spot in the VC community when it comes to the issue of student loan debt. I mean, we've been very lucky. We've gotten great world-class investors along the way. Um, NICA partners, uh, one of the leading FinTech funds out of New York led our round last year, for example. So, so it's not a, a universal rule, but I think there's, there's a big blind spot. And, the reason, you know, I have a few data points on it. Uh, I'm sure every, you know, every founder that's raised money, I'm sure has complained about why a VC can't, can't understand it faster. But I think in this case, to me, I look at the size of the problem, $1.7 trillion and the number of startups in this space. There are others, there are other good groups, but there's a tiny number of us. There should be hundreds of startups. I mean, the amount of student debt in the US is second only to mortgage debt. It's about twice the size of credit card debt. I mean, you know, you're just talking about these astronomical uh, scale and the level of investment going into it's pretty small. And and I have my own theory. You know, this is now personal Tobin opinion, not <laughs> not not data, but uh, yeah. I have my own theories about why that is. I mean, I think one of it is just it's changed so much over the last decade. Even you know, this is a quick growing issue, but I think a lot of it is. Um, Relatability. I mean, that the, the Android iPhone dynamic is a, is a good other illustration of this. But most people, generally, regardless of income, didn't have significant student loans 40, 50 years ago. So, or even 30 years ago. So, you know, and to the extent they did have student loans, you know, you're, you're talking very small amounts of money, $1,000 or less. So, you know, if they think back to their own student loans, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, I repaid it pretty quickly. Or now, you know, if you're a successful VC partner somewhere, maybe you're making enough money where you and your children don't have student loans. And I think that is different than these other big forms of debt in the US. Mortgages, well, you know, last I think I read somewhere at one point it's like Mark Zuckerberg has a mortgage. <laughs> I would like, assume. You know, uh, and you know, less well off people than him have mortgages. Credit cards, everybody has a credit card. So uh, I, I think student loans is a bit of a blind spot because it's having sort of a high impact but more targeted effect on society. Um, and I do think VCs are starting to catch up now. You know, I think more and more are looking at it uh, just because it's getting more and more attention. But you, you know, 
again, I think that's one of the reasons why the space is under invested in generally. It's it's convoluted, right? I'm very curious to get your perspective on broad student loan forgiveness. Like if, if Tobin was uh, you know elected president tomorrow and and had a, a Congress that agreed with him, what what would he do? Always a dangerous question to ask anyone in DC. Um, we could we could talk we could talk too long about what how we would do everything perfectly. Uh, well, first, I think I must say that we we think this is one of our competitive advantages with Savvy. I mean, we're headquartered out of DC. Um, we think that the government is the is the giant 800 pound gorilla you know they u.s government owns 90 percent of student loans in the u.s um and so staying really in tune with what's happening there is important for us to be able to deliver value to our users you know we if something's going to change if there's a new program we want to be the first ones to help our users learn about it benefit from it etc um and that's you know again one of the reasons why we're we're based here in terms of what might happen i mean i think that that is well, I guess there's what might happen and what should happen, um, which, you know, are, I guess, often very different things. So I think uh, in terms of what will, what is likely to happen, I feel I have, I'm somewhat confident that there will continue to be new programs and benefits, which will include forms of student loan forgiveness put out there for borrowers. You know, we've actually seen that on a bipartisan basis for decades now. You know, I know it, the, the student loan forgiveness today might be feel like a fairly partisan topic but um you know to go to back to our two most recent presidents president obama passed an expansion of a loan forgiveness program yeah. actually so did president trump you know president trump signed into law a 350 million dollar expansion into public service loan forgiveness it didn't get a lot of attention it wasn't you know the same scale but still like steady bipartisan progress so i'm hopeful that progress will continue to be made under a Biden administration and under the current Congress where they will create new programs um, or expand existing programs to help alleviate the burden of student loan debt. I, I think there's also a bit of a clock on this. So to any of those on this who are listening who don't have student loans, student loan payments have been paused for everybody uh, who has a a federal direct loan since March of last year due to COVID. It was the only time this has really ever happened. And they put in place an emergency pause as a, as a re- economic relief measure that's scheduled right now to resume in September. So to the extent that they're going to do additional benefits for folks, I mean, you ideally would do it right around that time. Um, if not right before, uh, so that, uh, folks can benefit from it before bills start. Uh, so that's kind of what it looks like, but it's fluid. You know, I think if, if the economy turns south, they could extend the payment suspension, give them more time on the bigger question of it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that any long-term solution on student loans also has to deal with the cost of college itself. So that's another huge topic. But you know, if you wiped out 1.7 trillion today, I think you could argue about the impact of that, et cetera. But Right now, estimates are there'll be another trillion dollars of student loans um, by the end of this decade. So, you know, you're, you'd be right back where we are before too long. So, I, I'm I'm hopeful that anything that is done thinks about both sides of that equation. Ooh, that is a staggering number, and I'm glad you said it because that's kind of where I wanted to go next. And it's less so. My question is less so even about the cost of it. My question is more so about the value of it. 
right? I mean, I think you're, you're in a position where you get out of bed every day to help people, right? No matter had they gone to a good college, a bad college, if they're happy they went to the university they did or they hate it, they still are in the economic situation they're in, right? And people are at this stage in life starting to think about maybe do they go to college? Do they not? Uh, especially with COVID, maybe like, do they take a gap year or something like that? For someone that like lives and breathes this, what's your perspective on the value of higher education now? And you're pretty educated. So I'm curious, especially about your perspective. Yeah, obviously, as you know, someone who works on student loan debt all the time, like I see the negative effects pretty directly. Um, and they can be dramatic. You know, I mean, you can talk about like people choosing not to get married because mm. of their student loans, people putting off kids, people not buying a house. I mean, these are, you know, sometimes I think it's useful just to think through like, it's not just you have less money. It's well, what is the consequence of having less money? Um, you know, with that said, I think generally all the research shows that having a college degree is more important than ever. And so, you know, if your option, you know, this, this is what's so tough. If your options are don't have a college degree um, or have one with student loans, most of the research shows that you'd be better off taking the student loans and getting the college degree. However, you know, I think there's, there's some exceptions to that. Um, one, just because that's true on average doesn't mean that's true for everybody, right? Yeah. Averages can leave lots of people out. Um, and you know that can be people who don't actually need a college degree for the field they're going into. Maybe they could get one that's lower cost, um, or at sort of the worst end of the spectrum, avoiding essentially fraudulent programs. Um, you know, a lot of folks unfortunately have gone to predatory online for-profit colleges that didn't deliver value and left with student loans. Um, I think the U.S. government should have done a better job in safeguarding that you know like why give people a loan to go to a program that you know that degree is worthless um they're yeah. not gonna, you know like they're not gonna be able to recover from um but that are there, are there controls on that i mean has that changed because i think of you know i see less of these well i guess i don't really watch regular programming on normal TV anymore. So this may be unfair, but I used to see a lot of these commercials of, you know, university of, I don't know. I don't know if I'm breaking any rules by saying university of Phoenix online or whatever, but you know, things like that, that very clearly are not going to be very valuable, but seem to have the money to constantly market and market and market. Would the government treat a student loan for that the same as a student loan for your local, you know, state university? Today, the government doesn't treat it any differently. So that's not to say there aren't any requirements or restrictions. Like there's some accreditation process, et cetera. But to the extent the U.S. government has taken enforcement action on the predatory side, it's been against really like absolutely egregious cases. Um, to give you one example, uh, you know, you had colleges that would go, you know, this, this was several years ago, but you would have colleges that would go into hospitals where people who are injured in our military overseas were recovering, sign them up to go to an online college uh, because they have extra benefits um, because of their veteran status or military status and could get extra grants and extra loans and things like that. So, you know, some of those like that, that is about as bad as it gets in my mind. Some of yeah. those were shut, have been shut down. So, 
there it's not that there's no action, but I would say there's very little. Um, there's not a lot of connection right now between uh, your college and your ability to repay your student loans. You know, those are two different things. Um, I'd be ris- remiss also if not just acknowledging that in addition to the cost of college, you know, our financial aid in the U.S. has become more and more focused on student loans instead of pure grants, etc. Mm. So, you know, rather than that, when I went to college, I used, I you name it, I took it out. So I had Pell Grants, I had student loans, etc. Um, probably if I went, you know, was in the exact same situation now, I'd probably leave college with a lot more loans because I'd have less Pell Grants and less other grants compared to the sticker price of college. So, so you know, like any big problem, you don't end up with $1.7 trillion in student loan debt without there being multiple contributing factors. Um, but there's a lot of different pieces to this problem. And, and again, just to bring it back to Savvy, we want people to make progress on all those issues. But we also said, look, there's 47 million people with student loan debt today. Like, we're going to focus on helping them. You know, let's, let's provide immediate relief to people today. And while other folks continue to, good, to do good work on solving this for, for the future. Yeah. I mean, the, the, pro- that's kind of why I asked the question is like the problem is big enough that it seems like it, even if people stopped, like all universities shut down today, no more new students, like you still have a billion dollar company worth of a problem to solve. It seems like just based on the existing student loan debt out there. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a massive amount of money, um, that's not going away anytime soon. And one of the reasons why this ties a little bit back to, you know, how VCs look at it and the business world. One of the reasons why I think good, there is progress there is other big industries are becoming more and more aware of the impact of student loan debt on them. So, you know, the, the Federal Reserve put out research on how many fewer homes people have been able to buy because they have student loans. Well, you know, the home and mortgage industry in the US, that's a pretty big market. <laughs> it's about as big as it gets, right? So, you know, they're looking at this issue of, wow, okay, we need to do something on student loans um, to help make sure people can afford houses. Uh, again, like I said before, same is true of people having kids. Um, you know, I saw a new research out this morning about how birth rate in the US is like been declining. Um, every year for the last six years and it's like lowest all time since they've started measuring. I'm sure there's a variety of factors that go into it, but like financial costs have got to be one of those, right? Um, and I bet you student loans plays a role there too. So, you know, these other segments of society are seeing the ripple effect and consequence on them, um, uh, which can be pretty massive. And I think that is resulting in more time and energy uh, being given to this topic. Yeah, it's a wild like snowball i guess is how i would describe it i have no, no, glad to say none of my personal friends are this way but i have friends of friends who have one specifically sticks out in my mind she graduated with i think like 30 or 40k in student loan debt which i think what, what is the average do you know off the top of your head yeah i mean the average for people leaving undergrads about 30 you know if you okay. have grad school it's higher than that but yeah right right in that range yeah so she had 30 40 something like that and she took a year off after graduating, right? She got a credit card and her family supported her a little bit, but she, she, you know, kind of just started traveling and racking up credit card debt on top of her student loan debt. And now somehow she's back in Kansas city and has afforded to buy, afforded somehow to buy a house. And I like, 
for the life of me, I've been trying to like put together the balance sheet of this human in my head and I just don't get it. Like there's no way that she's paying down her student loan debt. I'm sure she has an unbelievable amount of credit card debt and still somehow she got a mortgage and I almost like want to separate the mortgage part. But the snowball thing is just crazy to me where it almost feels like some people are so deep in a hole after that experience of graduating where they're like (laughs) candidly just fuck it you know like i've already got this much debt i might as well just pile it all the way on and then maybe when i'm 40 i go bankrupt and we start over or something like that but it almost like it seems like I, i graduated without debt for a lot of reasons that we can go into if you want but it was a longer story uh but it almost i I don't know how i would handle that like it seems like it would impact my emotions it seems like it would impact my day-to-day like i think i'd be much more in a scarcity mindset than i would be in an abundance mindset if i was in that position and it's just it's it's wild to think how that fork happens just depending on something as simple as you know how much you took out in student loans when you were freaking 16 or 18 or whatever, right? Like can't even drink yet. And you're making gigantic financial decisions. It's just wild. It, it is wild. And, and society is telling you, you should take out student loans. It's good right. debt, right? Like everyone's heard it's good debt. Yeah. Uh, you're yeah, 16 and they're saying, you know, saying, Hey, sign out on something that might, take you decades to repay. I mean, my my example I always go to whenever, you know, anyone with their own student loans cuz I would fail this test is, hey, what would, you know, what was the interest rate when you signed that loan? Right? Like no one knows. Like I have no idea. It could have been any number at the time. And, you know, obviously I'm someone who's worked on this issue a fair bit now. Um it it is a huge commitment for people to make. Uh, one other I I mean, unfortunately, I think we're going to see uh, a negative of sort of snowball effects in practice pretty soon with payments resuming. You, you know, we have been shielded. Student loan borrowers have been shielded from this issue for a while now with payments paused. That's going to end in a few months. And folks are starting to think about exactly that scenario. Well, okay, we're going to take 30 million plus people, send them a bill on their student loans for their first time in a year and a half. You know, what's going to happen? What about those people who can't afford it? Are they, you know, if you're falling behind on your student loan bill, are you going to stop paying your credit card bill or your mortgage or your other bill? Um, you know, is it going to hurt your credit score? So it actually means you have less ac- access to, you know, other sort of financial safety nets. Um, so nothing like this has ever been done. It's a few months away. It's, you know, hopefully the economy will be doing better and that will shield it. But there's going to be a lot of people who are still hurting economically. Uh, and, that ripple effect is going to become very real um, very quickly. I think many large financial institutions are starting to think about that as well. You know, we're certainly having a lot of conversations with them because they're realizing, hey, this is a problem. Um, you know, if you but if you can help them with their student loans, if that person's still unemployed, there's a program that keeps their payment at zero dollars for another year. You know, if you savvy help them get into that. Like that helps stop that ripple effect from starting. So that's sort of where we are, you know, entering the picture there. Um, but, but it's, it's going to be something that has, again, hasn't gotten a huge amount of attention yet, but, um, probably will get a bunch of attention in just a few months. Yeah. I mean, are the, the biz dev conversations you have tinted with a little shade of fear almost at this point? Like, are people starting to know that that cliff is coming and they're like, ah, I got to get this figured out sooner than later. Like, are things picking up or is it kind of like the other shoe hasn't dropped yet? Where, what are those conversations like? 
A bit. I mean, I think some of the more forward-thinking financial institutions are definitely there. They're definitely like, all right, let's get something in place ahead of time. Um, you also have, again, I mean, this is just another example of why this work, you know, is so impacted by what the government's doing. Uh, as part of the COVID relief legislation, they created new tax incentives for employers to help their employees with student loans. So, mm. you know, there's that sort of a positive uptake and interest on, on that front as well. Um, but, you know, uh, I think the biggest issue is people don't know exactly how it's going to play out. So uh, it's hard to know ex- what's, what it's going to look like and who's going to end up being um, sort of hit, hit most heavily at that point. Yeah, it makes sense. So one one thing I've been thinking about in the back of my head as we've been talking is how, you know, if I was head of product at Cash App, if I was head of product at, you know, Current or whatever, um, how heavy of an integration would it be to have Savvy on my platform? Do you all have like a set of APIs that make that pretty easy? Is this kind of already something you're working on? Or is it more so like that's a, a future state? So at Savvy, we took this... B2B to C model, uh, and did that for a variety of reasons. But as part of that, we've been intentional about our tech stack and building out APIs, et cetera, to make easy integration. And so we give people the whole spectrum, our partners, the whole spectrum. You know, we have employers that want to put a link to us on their site. That's about all yeah. they can do. That's fine. They can do that. Yep. Uh, but neobanks or, you know, fintechs generally, they tend to be more sophisticated. They have engineering resources. Um, there's some interesting things they can do there. I mean, they know a lot about their uh, customers' student loans already. So, you know, there's a fair bit they can do to tell people all from within their experience, hey, you can lower your payment, you can save money on student loans. Um, and then Savvy becomes more part of the fulfillment of that uh, as opposed to, you know, them needing to come over just to determine eligibility. So we do that very, uh, we do that via API. The other reason why partners often want to work with us, I mean, obviously there's the technology solution we provide, but they co-brand almost 100% of the time. You know, they're not asking a white label. And I think that's because they want to show who the partner is that's providing value. I mean, just as a sign of the space, people are suspicious. You know, people have a get a lot of ads if you have student loans for like suspicious, you know, save money here, do this, do that. You know, there's bad actors in this space. And so, you know, these entities are usually excited to say, we're providing a benefit on student loans. It's savvy. Check them out. You know, and people check us out. They see we're a public benefit company. They read about our founding story. They, you know, check out our better business review, whatever. And they come out and say, Oh, this is a great resource. Um, so, you know, equally important to the actual providing the service, I think, is this perception, uh, component. And so often with an API integration, we see that our partners still say, Hey, this is powered by savvy. Um, and, and, and put that in front of them. Yeah, it makes sense. And you're building, building brand equity that really matters. So that makes even more sense. I can already like see it in the current app, like as much, as much as they've done specifically current to kind of help folks get payments through PPP and things along those lines. Like it just seems like it aligns so well. So I'm just going to like speak on behalf of Stuart right now and be like, let's do it. Um, but it makes, it makes a ton of sense. So I hope to start seeing savvy in all of my. All of my favorite neo banking apps. Can I, uh, the last, can, yeah, can I say one other thing on that? So, yeah. one other one other thing I would just note because um, I think a lot of neo banks, etc., are focused on you know 
underbanked or lower income folks, et cetera. Not all, obviously there's a whole range, but, but yeah. I think that that's SoFi as an example. SoFi is an exception. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes, you know, we were talking earlier about age misperception on, on student loans. I think there's also often an income um, bias that mm. people think people tend to think not always, but tend to think people with student loans have college degrees, have well-paying jobs, etc. And that's certainly a big segment of those with student loans. But if you look at the data, as you can tell, I'm a data nerd, uh, your your default rate actually goes up with as your student loan balance goes down. And so just to try to say that again, the more student loans you have, the less likely you are to default on them. And that's a little counterintuitive until you kind of think about it in terms of actual people. What it tends to mean uh, is folks who have some debt, let's say less than $10,000 and don't have a college degree. Maybe they only went to college for a year or two and didn't complete. You know, those are the folks at a high risk of default. People who have six figures of debt, again, not to say there aren't exceptions to this, but a lot of sure. them are lawyers, doctors, um, people into business school, etc. And it's a lot of debt. It's a burden for them too. But in terms of their ability, like likelihood of default, it's lower. So, off, you know, I think a lot of the folks we're talking to right now in this space get it and have looked at the data and are really smart. But I'm, but it's always interesting to me sometimes when folks say, "Oh, our folks are lower income. Our folks are hourly. They don't have student loans." And then you know we encourage them to say, well, why don't you know look a little deeper? You have the data, and they're usually they're usually shocked um, to come away and realize, wow, it's a massive amount of student loan debt. Uh, a massive amount of their users are paying, you know, twenty twenty to thirty percent of their income on a monthly basis towards student loans. Just these sort of unsustainable numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's multi there's a couple pieces there that are especially interesting to me. I mean, I have this number one. As listeners may have gathered by now, I'm a little bit of an extrovert. So when I go and grab coffee at, you know, my local coffee shop, I tend to end up getting to know the baristas and it feels like a hundred percent. Granted, all of this is anecdotal, but feels like a hundred percent of them have some sort of student debt. Just got done with graphic design, yada, yada at the local junior college or something, something, something. Right. And they, are working at a coffee shop and I always tip well because they explain these things to me and how in the hell could we expect them to actually pay back on a regular basis? Like it's mind blowing to me. Whereas I have another friend who was actually just over here like 10 minutes ago uh, who just graduated from medical school and I learned something fascinating from her that I had no idea, right? I come from banking, like the bank that I was at before I was at Bond was specifically big in the mortgage space. But this whole like doctor mortgage thing, she's not making shit for money right now. But because she graduated medical school, got into a residency program, she gets access to this this lending program inside of a bank that acts as if she's already making the amount that she's going to make when she's, you know, acting as a full-time doctor, right? So it's like the the it's not even the rich get richer it's the the debted get in deeper debt or something like that but it's really interesting how like they just run the opposite directions of each other you know and i could see how like she's my friend that just graduated medical school she's anal retentive about any everything and is totally you know type a and obsessed and will never default on anything much less her student loan debt or mortgage whereas like the you know i just got coffee from my barista this morning and she was you know 
out there in the ether kind of doing her thing and might have forgotten that she even owed student debt in yeah. some cases, right? It's like a very different Or might miss thing. the notice when payments resume, yeah. you know? I mean, it it maybe, you know, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about your two examples is from, again, there's complexity, but as a result, like there's different student loan benefits designed for exactly both of those cases that are fairly different, right? Like what that person needs who is working hourly, is trying to figure out their long-term career plans, isn't making a lot of money, they need help on that month's payment. You know, They need to make sure that month's payment is affordable. Because if they go into delinquency status or default status, that's going to hit their credit score. That's going to set them down the wrong path. You know, On the other hand, that person who is becoming a doctor, um, A, they might have some fairly unusual changes in income, right? Like a relatively <laughs> low amount during a residency, yeah. then their income can triple and, you know, things like that. They're also trying to decide what sectors to go into, um, things like that. And so there's entirely different loan programs, in that case, more oriented around forgiveness and the balance as opposed to that month's payment uh, for that group of people. So, um, you know, for most, again, you add it all up, for most folks out there, there's a better option. People just don't know what to do. Uh, and then that, that's where we can help. We have a number, a lot of hospital clients, I mean, for example. So, you know, often in many states, the largest health system, the largest employer, or one of the top three employers in the states, often a health system. So, like Hackensack Meridian Health in New Jersey or, um, or an individual hospital like Boston Medical Center, you know, those are all savvy clients because they have such a wide range of points where people are dealing with student loan debt on that spectrum based on if they just left school, if they've been a doctor for seven years, you know, if they're a nurse, kind of all 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 across the board. And clerical staff, right? Clerical. Like I think we we think about hospitals and we're like, ah, those rich fucks. It's just a whole bunch of, you know, doctors making half a million dollars a year walking around. But like that's some of the most average Americans, you know, for every one doctor, maybe there's like five clerical staff or like five non-doctors, be they RNs, be they whatever, that are not paid the same way that we seem to just like lump them all together as if they're all the same socioeconomic buildup or something. That's right. Well, and I think sometimes, you know, the Student debt can be a political hot topic. And one of the things I say about the, the, some of the laws on the books is uh, because many of them are percentage based, I think they're fair, right? So, you know, that doctor uh, is not going to be expected to pay the same amount, let's say, if they're making, you know, significant six figures as that clerical staffer. They could both go into a same, a similar program, but 10% of one number is very different than 10% of another. So, you know, we, um, one of the nice, one of the reasons why employers like our benefit is exactly what you said. They can roll it out, give it to everybody, and regardless of their economic situation, they can probably find a benefit. But, um, but it's done in a fair way. You know, it, I mean, these programs are are generally um, smart in their construct, even if they've had poor uptake, uptake and people have had trouble accessing them. It makes sense. It makes sense. So I know we're kind of coming up on time here. So let's let's hit the important pieces being one. How can our listener base help you? You know, if they want to maybe integrate with some of those APIs we were talking about or get in touch with you in any way, shape or form. One, what can they do for you? And two, how uh, can they get a hold of you if they want to get involved? Well, thank you for that question. Uh <laughs> So folks can check out our website. You know, we spell savvy, S-A-V-I. So you can just Google us, Savvy Student Loans, or go to our website, B-Y-S-A-V-I.com, by Savvy. 
Uh, we call it that because a lot of folks embed us. And as I said before, you know, it's their student loan tool provided by Savvy. So um, feel free to check out our website, reach out to us there. Um, the, the thing I would say that is the reason I think we've had success on sort of a B2B side is uh, it's a low risk integration. You know, if, if you're even if you're skeptical, ah, I don't know how many people you know need student loan help. Whatever, if you integrate us and people don't use us, we're not charging you for that. You know, it it if we're only charging and making money if we're finding savings, and that savings tends to be significant. Um, again, eighteen hundred dollars a year on average. So, um, you know, we would encourage folks even if they're unsure. You know, many many partners integrate us partially to figure out how big of an impact student loan has on their student loans have on their customers, their employees. So there's a lot of range of integrations. Um, we're rolling out more every month. And again, I think that September date is going to be an important one as payments are set to resume for folks to be planning around. I need like some some like Star Wars music, like some some Empire Strikes Back kind of vibes to start playing when you start talking about September. <laughs> like just ominous music builds in the background. Employers yeah, become well, scared hope, shitless. Hopefully that would catch on because uh, <laughs> I think the awareness of uh, 30 million people getting bills for the first time is low. Um, but yeah, I, I, theme music. Maybe maybe we need a meme around this, something like that. <laughs> Let's let's get Dogecoin involved, and it Dogecoin. can only get better from here. <laughs> yeah, you didn't even get into uh, how Dogecoin is the solution to our student debt problem, so we'll have to save that for another day. So we have a round two: Dogecoin <laughs> solves student loans. I get it now; it all makes sense. I was wondering what Dogecoin was for, and we found the utility. We have the technology. <laughs> exactly. Delvin, thanks for the time, man. This has been a blast. I've learned a ton. I'm sure the listeners have too, at least a little bit, even though a lot of them are smarter than me. But I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for doing what you do. And offline, I can't wait to buy you a drink and get the rest of the Obama stories because I know there's more that you couldn't say over the air. Thanks, Zach. Well, yeah, I really appreciate being on. Uh, hopefully, folks enjoyed it, even even on a subject such as student loans. Um, but we're excited to do our part and uh, appreciate you giving us the time to talk about it. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Tobin at Savvy. I've added pertinent links to the show notes if you want to dig deeper into Savvy and do a little internet creeping. Just take a look. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the responsible podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Bye, y'all.